0: This is a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G, the science fiction, fantasy and historical radio show for episode number 1190. I'm Rob Jan and today's episode is entitled Catching the Winter Rays and our podcast title is King of Pods. And today in the studio it is my great pleasure to welcome back to Zero-G for the first time in over 14 years US-American fantasy author Raymond E. Feist. Raymond is touring his new Harper Voyager novel, King of Ashes, which is the first of an entirely new fantasy book cycle, The Main Saga. And the 30-volume-plus commentaries (laughs) Riftwar cycle began with Magician in 1982 and wrapped up in 2014 with Magician's End. Find out more about Raymond's literally epic body of work at www.cryd.com dot com and I will embed that link on today's zero G playlist at rrr.org.au. Welcome back to chilly Melbourne, Ray.
1: Thank you, and boy, you have really lousy summers down here. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, as, as some obscure
0: I, hack once said, winter has come.
1: Yeah, well, as, uh, <laughs> that obscure hack who is a friend of mine has said many things. Uh, you know, I just, I just every time somebody brings George's name up, I always reference back to. Uh, him autographing my first edition of armageddon rag oh, i love that book
0: <laughs> i can remember it when he was doing um beauty and the beast
1: yeah well that was b- after he had written uh fever dream and armageddon mm. and then decided hollywood called mm. and uh, i think he had his fill because um it stood him in good stead when he made the deal for Game of Thrones, obviously, because he understood the industry. A lot of writers don't, and that's really to their disadvantage. Huh.
0: Well, this is not the George R.R. R. Martin show. It's Raymond E. Feist today. And Raymond's been touring with Supernova Pop Culture Conventions and also with Harper Voyager to talk about the the new book, The King of Ashes. And here's the question I wanted to ask And and I was thinking about it on the way here And I realized it actually answers itself But I'll ask it anyway The question, why a new epic fantasy Rather than working in the elaborate universe You've already created?
1: Well, leukemia is a virtual world I mean, that, we start with that It's like, so let me contrast that for a moment With, with uh, questions that I've been asked along the way Well, how can you write so many novels there? You know, And I say, well, how come Hemingway Could write so many novels on Earth? <laughs> You know, uh, nobody ever asked Mark Twain if he got tired of writing about the Mississippi. I think the point being that um, it was never about the world. It was always about that cycle of five Rift Wars. And there's a lot of kind of game history trivia with the guys I played in college with, with role playing and all that. But the simple answer is, is that there were there were always five rift wars in my mind and so when i got to the end of the last one i was like okay i am now done i could have elected to write something else in the same universe but i wanted to try as the musicians musicians say some different riffs i wanted to uh create a different world and garn is a very different world in a lot of ways uh from alchemia uh you know magic doesn't work there the same way uh there are no sentient races besides humans that kind of thing.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, this is the Riff the new Riff War, then instead of the Rift War. So we reviewed the book last week on the show, uh, so the audience for Zero G should be a bit prepped about it. <laughs> so, so we know that there's the uh, the five basic kingdoms, the five crowns on gun. Uh It's a a continent, kind of like the um, the um, Americas. It's split in the half,
1: a little bit in little half. Bit, yeah. Okay, it's the two continents, the twin continents. Um, The world of Garn has other continents, but I won't show you where they are just yet. Just yet. And uh, North and South Timbria are separated by the Narrows. And there's a choke point in the middle called, uh, which is at the time of the book's beginning, the the Covenant area. And uh, there's a lot of backstory that can be referenced while reading the novel. Mm. But the short version is, is that it starts with a huge betrayal. And the betrayal triggers events like dominoes falling. Um, And as any good novel has in it, there are unexpected consequences. Mm.
0: There are deaths of royal families, we shall say. Uh, I don't think this is giving too much away, really, at this stage. Uh, And there is a character who will survive this battle and go on to be important in the narrative for the next three three novels?
1: Well, I hope it's just three. <laughs> I
0: hope it's just three. <laughs> you know, it,
1: my, my plan is a, a traditional trilogy. Uh-huh. You know, three-act play, basically, and, and unlike most three-act plays, the first book is almost uh, a curtain-raiser rather than a true first act. It, it definitely introduces all the players and sets the stage, but the uh, real nasty stuff... Begins in book two uh-huh. uh, The the title of which will be Queen of Storms
0: uh-huh. Now you said that one of the first questions A writer should ask about a character Who is going to be a leader Is why does he or she want the job I mean it's early stages yet But um, I think you've already established a reason For the prince who doesn't know he's a prince um, Well who's... well,
1: that, that's a very very interesting question In the context of this book Because at this point The character of Artushoi Uh, doesn't even know there's a job, let alone, does he want it? Yes. he's. he's, Characters are often divided easily into little subcategories. And in this context, I think the one that we could play with is those who want the job and those who are thrust in it despite (laughs) whatever objections they may have. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we'll play a a track here, uh, and it's... um Uh, One I thought about before I selected it today, it's uh, Nature Boy, and this is from Moulin Rouge's soundtrack, and David Bowie is interpreting it here. And I want to play that one because, well, we play a David Bowie track every week, (laughs) and, well, it's really about King Arthur. Mm -hmm. That's what the original uh, song is is for, so we'll give that one a, a go.
1: This is Cecilia D'Art Thornton, author of the Bitterbine
0: Trilogy, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. And no, I can't get you Billy Bob's autograph. Okay, back in the studio, Rob Jan talking to Raymond E. Feist, and that was Nature Boy, David Bowie track for today
1: from Moulin Rouge. I'll show you how old I am when I hear Nature Boy, I think Nat Cole.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of that, too. Yeah. But then I like to think of David Bowie, too. Well, now.
1: I like to think of David Bowie often. He is a brilliant artist. Mm.
0: Uh, now, the character, uh, the, the prince that we're talking about, um, who I will call Hatu for short, because that works easier for me, he's got this perpetual burning anger within him that he doesn't really understand yet. And I thought that would actually be a pretty good... Um, lead into him eventually stepping up into whatever he ends and up And I fooled as. you. You did fool me? Yes. Oh.
1: No, I mean, in the sense <laughs> that he, he comes to terms with that towards the end of the book in a way uh. that I hope is unexpected. Uh, nothing a writer loves to hear more than, yeah, I saw that coming. Uh, <laughs>
0: Uh, oh, last time you were here, 14 years ago, I think there was a, we were talking about And this is something that you do in your books, uh, The Unexpected And I think since it's been 14 years, we can probably spoil it from back Well, then.
1: you know, the funny thing <laughs> about it is I had this dis- very discussion just before I left the States It's not 14 years ago for the kid who just started reading Magician This is true
0: uh, but there's a as a character. I mean, it's 30 books, so yeah. somewhere in these 30 books, there's a character who's uh, a, a, quite an important figure, and he gets accidentally killed by a crossbow bolt yes, charged yes, by yeah. one of his men. And actually,
1: he's. I like the fact that you said he was an important figure because actually, in the narrative, uh, he's he's a secondary figure. Yeah. And and boy, when you make a secondary figure important, he shoots, he scores nothing but net.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the the to uh, reminds me a little bit of. Um, Beatrice Kiddo from the Kill Bill st- uh, movies. He's he's going Actually, to be <laughs> you're,
1: you're, First of all, never occurred to me in a million years. Secondly, um, interesting. Mm. You know, I mean, first of all, I approve of anything with Uma Thurman in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> start with that. Uh, you know, the the idea that um, a character is motivated by something outside themselves. Huh. You know, whereas you know, in other words, she was the victim of abuse and horrible things happened to her, and she. You know, metamorphized into this you know r- revenge-driven killing machine. So, in the sense that, yeah, uh, revenge is a motif that I really will explore in more depth in the second and third book. Sure. The um, idea, though, that with Hattusheli it comes from within. You know, it's like it's part of his DNA, huh. and so uh, she has absolutely no motive whatsoever to hold back anything. You know. Um, Yeah, I'm not not a Tarantino fan in the sense of some people being, you know... I find all his work interesting. Some of it I like, some of it I don't like. Um, But that's a really interesting pair of movies. And I hope people read my stuff and say, that's a really interesting set of books.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well we'll play another track here. And um, last, uh, last time we played a track, last week to do with King of Ashes, I actually played another one called King of Ashes, which was uh, by British musician David Knopfler, who's the um, the brother of uh, Mark. Mark, yeah, Princess Bride sort of connection, yeah. so we, since I played that last week, since I used that, expended that, this week I'll play King of Ashes by Sam Heilig from his album Something to Live For, he's a US American folk singer uh, from Atlanta, and it talks about castles and stuff, yeah, it's spot on, so here we go with King of Ashes by Sam Heilig.
1: Hi, my name's Con Igledon. I'm the author of The Dangerous Book for Boys and Wolf of the Plains, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R.
0: Back in the studio, Rob Jan here talking to Raymond E. Feist, who is touring with his new novel, King of Ashes, book one of the Main saga. It's a Harper Voyager hardcover, and the track you just heard was Sam Heilig's King of Ashes. All right, now, Raymond... Um, as a writer, what attracts you to the coming-of-age story, the Bildungsroman, as the uh, Germans call it?
1: Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I didn't recognize for a while uh, I was doing that, and um, I think there are several variables. We can start with something as fundamental as, well, I read a lot of Heinlein when I was a kid. And one of the things that he did was he convinced me that even though I wasn't a competent fifteen-year-old, that they such possibly could exist somewhere in the Uh You know, you read "Tunnel in the Sky" and, and yeah. uh, you know, all, you know, Rocketeer and all that stuff. It's 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 okay, fine. It's 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 the legator to. Boy's adventure fiction uh-huh. of the 19th, late 19th and early 20th century. C.S. Forester, yeah, Hornblower. Exactly. And, you know, Beat to Quarters, you know, mm. and uh, Midshipman Hornblower. Mm. Uh, the idea of a boy becoming a man uh, and, you know, to be politically correct, you know, a girl becoming a woman. Uh, adolescence is no fun. You know, if we remember <laughs> high school with a smile, it's because we've glossed over all the unpleasant memories. Yeah. The reality, though, is that, you know, the, the the boy becomes the man. The the girl becomes the woman. You know, our youth is the foundation upon which we build. And in my case, I think it's um, partially influences, but also partially it's one of the most interesting aspects of the human experience, <clears throat> watching the formation. Uh, I'm 72 years old. There are a whole lot of things I'm not about to change, you know? <laughs> I don't care how good you think that restaurant is, I don't like sushi. <laughs> and at 72, nobody's going to look at me and say, oh, well, you haven't had a good sushi.
0: Wait, the Sisters of the Deep are going to have an issue with that.
1: Yes, they do. <laughs> and the idea that that I'm going to change my worldview uh, is, is, you know, I changed my worldview when I was young. You know, when I began in politics as a as a, you know, sort of staunchly... A liberal Republican, and yes, such a thing did exist in America in the early '60s. You know, I worked on behalf of Nelson Rockefeller. You know, uh, you know, fiscally conservative but socially liberal. Blah blah blah. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Nah. Um, so I have evolved and changed from that to where I am now. Which Mort Saul, the comic, uh, who who was one of the best political comics in in American history back in the '60s, said, "If you maintain a steady, no, if you maintain a constant." Political position long enough, they'll, they'll try you for treason. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there's this weird element of truth there because I, I, I feel, and I may be deluding myself, that I haven't changed huh. in a lot of respects. But I probably have, and I'm just sort of ignoring the process of accommodation. You know, it's, it's like when somebody gets a pe- pebble in their shoe and tries to ignore it, and then sometime later they're wondering where the limp came from. Uh, you accommodate to certain things. In my case, I I became what my daughter informed me last week was called woke. I am officially woke, according to my daughter. (laughs) And I asked her, what does that mean? She says, oh, it means an old white guy who gets it. Uh, (laughs) And I I think that was meant as a compliment. I'm not entirely sure.
0: So, you know, is the person who you see in the mirror, I mean, never mind the the physical changes that we all go through, or all of us who aren't immortal, at least, is the person that you look at in the mirror now how do you feel? You've changed.
1: Well, that's the the problem, isn't it? Because it's a daily, slow process, yeah. and uh, I I I joke about it a lot. You know, I, I, I maintain the idea that uh, there are things that one does. I use this as a as a measuring stick, and and for people who are much younger than I am, which is getting to be a larger and larger segment of the population day by day, apparently. Um, if if you want to know what I was raised in, the the culture. Uh, Binge watched the first season of Mad Men in 1960 when Nixon and... Kennedy, I was 14 years old. Yeah, you know. So if you see the three martini lunch and the, the horrible treatment of women and the uh, ignoring basically of people of color and this anti-Semitism and all that—that's rampant in that show. That's the culture I was raised in. Sure. The, the the behavior that you see was sort of the expected norm of of that culture. So I had to overcome a lot of things. You know, I kind of say semi-jokingly, there are young women out there. Well, they're not so young anymore, but there are women out there who. You know, I need to hunt down and apologize for being 25, Uh, you know, because the way in which I approached relationships, that's one thing. My political views obviously have changed, given that as what I said earlier about having gone from liberal liberal Republican to, you know, traitor to my race, apparently, according to some people. And, (laughs) you know, you're a human, Ryan, And you can't be a traitor. And um, uh, exactly. And and, you know, you know, you know, I'm I'm the. uh, Psychophan of our insect overlords apparently or you know whatever it's it's one of those things where i feel like i'm still the same guy and the world around me has kind of moved and changed and all that and in response to that i've had to sort of shift some perspectives but i think at heart if i'm to be entirely honest um you know, it's uh, there's still a 15 year old kid inside, <laughs> and he looks at the mirror once in a while and goes, "Dad," you know. Um, it's it's difficult because, yeah, things don't work the way they used to. You know, I had to get a hearing aid, and you know, that was sort of you know a blow to my totally fanciful self image. <laughs> um, you know, I can't sprint up the stairs two at a time the way I did when I was you know a, a young lyrician. I, I can't uh, do many things the way I used to. But you can still write, right? Well, and we appreciate part. that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I enjoy that, too. So I guess the answer is, you know, I, I don't think in terms of being painfully aware of moment to moment, mm. but it's every once in a while I look in the mirror and I recognize something has changed. And it's just the ravages of time. Well, you yeah. know, time takes no, no prisoners. Well,
0: and Sean Connery said in... Um mm. Uh, the uh, Robin and Marion film, he said, the years they whittle at you. They do,
1: they yeah. do. Now, you know,
0: speaking yeah. of, uh, of, of relatives and fathers and so on, um, the next track I wanted to play is... Again, uh, it's called The Little Prince, so mm-hmm. that works in with our discussion a about... A book I
1: the adored copy. as a child. Yes,
0: <laughs> and this is by a group called Donovan's Brain, and it's from their <laughs> album <laughs> okay. A Defeat of Echoes, and it's the fifth album from the Montana-based folk rock troupe, The mm-hmm. Little Prince by Donovan's
1: Brain. This is Raymond DeFice, scribe of midkemia, and you're listening to Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio.
0: There you go. That was The Little Prince. Donovan's Brain is the group from their album, A Defeat of Echoes.
1: The title of a film my father directed. That's right. <laughs> based, based on a screenplay by Kurt Seidemark. That's it.
0: Felix F. Feist, who was e, no, your
1: Felix, father? Felix E. Feist. E. Feist, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, Kurt, Kurt wrote the book, and they wouldn't let him write the screenplay. <laughs> there was a whole bunch of studio politics going. Uh-huh. So my dad wrote the screenplay and directed it.
0: He also directed the um, remarkably spectacular apocalyptic movie Deluge, from yes, which, which
1: remarkably has been discovered. You can now mm. buy it on Blu-ray.
0: Oh. oh, I didn't know that. Oh yes. my God, I've I've learned something. Yes.
1: Thank you. It's, you're welcome. It's, it's yeah. No, I I got a screener from a fan in Europe uh, some time ago on a D, on a uh, DVD, which was at the time a recently discovered Italian dub with English subtitles, mm. and then to the rapturous joy of myself and perhaps some film historian aficionados they actually found a decent english language print and oh. it's now out on blu-ray
0: it is an amazing film it's a post it's a, an <coughs> apocalyptic film with the title telling everything about a deluge a great uh, a, a, a great uh, inundation of the world and the special effects are amazing for 1933 yeah
1: Actually, it was earlier than that. It was 1930 when it was produced. Mm, Yes. My father was an interesting character, but the thing I find the most interesting about him is that that was probably the first disaster film, Mm. you know, way before, you know, Krakatoa, east of Java. And by the way, it's west (laughs) of Java. And, um, uh, you know... Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno and, and and then later on with, you know, Armageddon and, and Deep Impact and all that. Hmm. Uh, or, and especially, you know, Day After Tomorrow and that ridiculous 2012, which is, you know, one of those guilty pleasure kind of films you bring a big bag of popcorn with.
0: Uh, now, speaking of guilty, I know you've got a big DVD collections. Speaking of guilty pleasures, uh, you and I both share a passion for um, a cheesy... Um, sword and sandal flicks
1: oh uh, i was speaking of that just the other day you know it's like it's it's i was emotionally scarred by steve reeves <laughs> you know steve reeves and all those guys who you know their lips never synced up with the yeah. words because they were speaking in italian
0: and sometimes and, hercules would uh, meet the moon men and
1: <laughs> oh they really got out there
0: but but what do we learn i mean this is something we do on zero g we do talk about what we call yeah nah, maybe films so so bad
1: that they're actually good part of it for me was understanding uh not not as an active student i mean kind of as a passive sponge so many things that i can look back on now contributed to my understanding of narrative Uh and a lot of those cheesy films would be things that i would look at and go no 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 see if they just done this this way it would (laughs) have (laughs) worked and i i didn't realize that's what i was doing Uh, I just watched a bit of uh, Jason and the Argonauts not too long ago. Ah, classic. And it was interesting because I could sort of bifurcate my brain and watch it with an adult critical eye of myself as a writer these days, and yet still remember the echoes of wonder watching that as a teenager. Uh,
0: Ray Harryhausen.
1: Yeah, Ray Harryhausen, exactly.
0: Who we've interviewed as well, by the way.
1: Yeah, I met him a a few times. uh, He really was a very humble man who who actually... uh, uh, I, I remember I wasn't there, but a mutual friend saw him at a uh, I, I'm not, a trade show, perhaps, perhaps E three or something like that, uh-huh. where uh, a whole bunch of people working for outfits like uh, uh, you know, Lucas Films, you know, Industrial Lights and Magic, and you know, Pixar, and, and sort of the cutting edge uh, digital, you know, CGI people, where he was there as a spokesperson on a panel or whatever, and it's like. He was totally blown away by the fact that everybody else in the room, like, immediately gathered around him and wanted to meet him. Yeah, and and all the young digital mavens who were saying, "You were my inspiration, man." And then they would start, you know, talking about, you know, Sinbad and the, uh, you know, Seventh Voyage of the Sinbad and and uh, from Earth to the Moon, and you know, Fifty Million Miles to Earth, and all those breathtaking films of my youth. When, when yeah, it was claymation animate animate not claymation but you know stop, stop animation stop animation yeah. and and you know by today's standard looks primitive but yet sitting there as a kid watching this stuff in the theater with my mouth hanging open you know was that and and i think that's what we dial in on in my writing and movie making and all the sense of wonder yeah yeah
0: it never goes away if you actually that i think that's actually the best way of making sure that the person who's looking at you in the mirror is still that that kid yeah, keep that I, sense of wonder i, I, I
1: think it's important
0: Hello, I'm Ray Harryhausen, animation pioneer. You're listening
1: to Zero G on Three Triple R FM.
0: Uh, to give a, a, a that's a, a good segue into another track here, a good sword and sandal film, one of my favourites, the Three Hundred Spartans, of a soundtrack by <laughs> Manos. <laughs> your cast?
1: Oh, it is so historically bogus, but it's yeah, such fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I tell you, I, I like, I prefer it to uh, three hundred.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's one of those films where uh, you know, and oh, I'm having a senior moment here. Help me out. The 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 star of the film. Um, Oh, I can't remember
0: it either. But uh, is it like it's not like Victor Mature or no? Something no, 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 or, no,
1: no, no. It's a, uh, Richard yeah, e- yeah. Egan. Yeah, Richard Egan, I think. And it's like he's you know a guy who's known for cop films and you know playing tough guys and all that and and uh, westerns a few. And here he is, you know, in his sword, in, in the skirt with the sandals and the sword and all that. And actually, there's some elements of historical accuracy.
0: Yeah, that's just the thing. They at least have armor, and they talk about the Athenian navy, and
1: and they, and they talk about why the Three hundred have to go, in the rest of that's right for the holy holiday and all. Of that. Yeah.
0: yeah, so we'll get that track now. Nice. I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels. So you can believe me when I say that Zero G on Three Triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the Black Stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world. So you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha! With three exclamation marks. The Stirring 300 Spartans by Manos Hadjikdakis from the movie soundtrack, a good sword and sandal or or pepler movie from back in the day. Now, we're talking to Raymond E. Feist, whose epic novel, and I really use that in the sense of the word because uh, it is of a new epic saga, the Main Saga, it's volume one, King of Ashes, and it's Harper Voyager a book. We did review the book last week, so for more details, check out last week's Zero-G, which is available as a podcast, or you can do audio on demand from rrr.org.au. Now, Raymond, there's a lot of questions that I could ask you about this book. I could go on for another hour, but we don't have the time to do that. Uh, so... I'm going to ask one particular question that's inspired by the back cover of the book.
1: Oh no! <laughs> I am says, not the art director. <laughs> no, no. But this is actually a, a
0: comment on the back, oh, you know, a, oh, okay. a catchphrase, yeah. a, a tagline oh. from the ashes: a king must rise. Now, my question is, why? Why in fantasy novels must there always be a king that rises from the ashes? Why don't they just decide? Well, sod this for a game of soldiers. Let's let's just become a democracy or a
1: <laughs> well, well. <laughs> First and foremost, I didn't write that. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the the blurb copy guy did. Yeah. Uh, secondly, um, I have about six different ways I can go with the answer, so I think I will avoid you know turning this into a uh, marketing one hundred and one <laughs> seminar, and and just leave it with um, I think that one of the one of the advantages to going into another era, you know, so we go feudal, we go to tribal, whatever, is it simplifies. The variable, the moving parts, you know, when you're t- dealing with uh, one character as opposed to a nation. I, I, one example, I love the film 1776. I, uh-huh. I adore it. I think it's the probably the least painful way to introduce somebody to some actual American history. Sure. You know, it, it's because it's got snappy tunes and very good actors. And it really covers the high points. It, you know, the, the the historian buff will... will You know, revel in the details of, you know, it was hot and they had the windows closed and they wore this and they got food there and, you know, this guy was, you know, getting hemorrhoids or whatever. So in the sense that it covers the high points. Well, when you write about a monarch, you're dealing with one person who historically tends to echo the kingdom, the people. In other words, there are things about the ruler that exemplify... The, the the society, uh-huh. you know, um, it, when when Charles the first was beheaded by Cromwell, yeah, it was not just one guy getting another guy a, a really bad haircut. It was also talking about a sea change in culture, society, politics, that that was un thought of prior to that in the british history uh-huh. and and so what you can do with what i'm doing or other writers will do is is take really complex issues and sort of boil them down to the personal level right and use one person as an exemplar of of things you want to talk about and the question you ask i i think that you know it, it could be fun and you know maybe someday i'll have enough courage or maybe enough whiskey to <laughs> consider doing a story about, um, you know, let's uh, create the first republic on a fantasy world. And, I, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's an intriguing idea, uh-huh. but I point to the fact that the Egyptians were around 6,000 years before the Romans showed up to, you know, blow, you know, take over Egypt, and uh, that was about 8,000 years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and we've only had uh, a republic predicated on ideals. That's the unique thing about America. I, I tend not to be. I try very hard not to be jingoistic. But but the one thing I will say that we should get props for, we were the first nation that said, let's not think about the divine right of inheritance by God. Let's not think about simply who's got the biggest gun. Let's talk about ideals. Let's talk. Let's predicate what we're doing on the ideas of, of, you know, it was the absolute culmination of the Age of Enlightenment. And as such, it's kind of hard to work that into a fantasy setting (laughs) where you're battling dragons and, you know, armies of orcs are coming over the mountains and, you know so i'm not even sure it ne- it necessarily could mix well <clears throat> but
0: uh, but you know what when it doesn't uh it can be quite spectacular i i, I we've talked about the novels of an, an author called k j parker uh-huh. uh, which is a, a pseudonym it 's actually tom holt but uh, and they they actually explore he actually explores the the problems with the of the ideals so he's well, actually a good one for that
1: right and i think i think that's lovely, and hopefully you know they're successful stories and and because huh. I, it it occurs to me that I'm not sure I'd welcome the challenge, be- simply <laughs> because, given my nature, I would want to get into the weeds. I'd I'd want to say, okay, book two, is about the mercantile expectations of the <laughs> right emerging middle class, and their attempts to garner a, pos- a position of power, which I kind of did a little bit in Rise of a Merchant Prince. Yeah, you
0: did a lot. <laughs> yeah.
1: But one of the one of the things that I I really enjoy about King of Ashes is I have a character who at the very end of the first book doesn't know what's coming. Huh. And in a sense I don't either. I'll get I'll know when I get there whether he embraces this or whether he's reluctant or whether he rejects it. And that's a an author's thing about I got three or four other characters who and so it's how the interplay goes. I trust my, my subconscious. Okay. I will understand at the time when I get there and I have, you know, three or four characters doing whatever they're doing and when character a does a certain thing and then character b reacts to it a certain way then i'll see what character c does (laughs) and at that point i'll have a better answer for you on why not a republic or or, you know why always an absolute monarch here's an even more fundamental question why should any king rise out of the ashes you know um I think that uh, at one point I considered the idea of him, well, I don't know, I probably won't write this, so I guess this speculation is not a spoiler, but I actually thought of him, like, at some point turning his back on the whole thing and walking away, yep. mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then I was visited with the fact that I'd have lots of readers throwing <laughs> the book across the room, because, you know, if you do something in a certain way, you have to do it brilliantly. But I, then, I, you bring, then you bring one of
0: your. Supposedly, secondary characters up, and, and then they find out, oh, this is the person who the book is about all along.
1: Yes, Fortinbras shows up in the last four pages. Yes. <laughs> I, think, I think that one of the things that um, I, I try to talk to people who want to be writers and say, look, you know, a character is, is two dimensional unless they react to the forces around them and evolve. Huh. And uh, I said, the only time you can have a character who remains unchanged is if you're writing about a character who remains unchanged. Yeah. And by that I mean there has to be an intentionality to the design. The best example of that ever is the first version of Alfie with, with Michael Caine in the book it's based upon, where at the end of the book, after all these things that Alfie's gone through, um, and he's wrestling to understand who he's hurt for loving him and who has hurt him um, and and what lessons to be gleaned, He turns and breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience and says. And then sometimes I ask myself, what's it all about?
0: (laughs) Well, we've had a a great session here today. We've not with Michael Caine, but with Raymond (laughs) E. Feist, and giving us a masterclass on fantasy writing uh, with his book *King of Ashes*, which is the first volume in the new Fireman Saga, and it's a Harper Voyager hardback. And I'd like to thank Raymond for coming in for the third time. My pleasure. And Brendan Fredericks from Harper Voyager, Supernova Pop Culture, and Triple R's Talk Producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Now, Raymond, last time you gave us a little bit of a, a station ID card where you said, uh, <laughs> this is Raymond E. Feist, scribe of M- mid So now we can call you Raymond E. Feist, scribe of Garn.
1: Or you can just call me Raymond E. Feist, boy writer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We can indeed. All right, so uh, that's it for today on um, the interview part of the show, at least. And we'll go over a track here that I discovered um, this morning. It's by a New York metal guitarist from 2007, an album called Druid Green. His name is Brett Miller, and he's actually done a track called Return to Crondor. Hi, I'm Janny Wirtz, fantasy author and artist, and whether you walk in the shadows or the light, you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Returning from Crondor there with Zero G and I have been Rob Jan today and Megan McHugh is away in her terra genesis cocoon and will be returning to zero g later in the year after she has mastered her new superpowers Now, I've been watching season four of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., in case you can't tell from that, and it wickedly adapts elements of both the recent Secret Empire and the 1988 Nick Fury vs. S.H.I.E.L.D. Marvel Comics storylines. And the first is a a way deeper variant of HYDRA taking over the world than we saw them attempt in Captain America Civil War. In In the comic book miniseries, it's the result of cosmic cube reality bending where famously even Captain America's origin was perverted to make him the ultimate deep cover hydra agent and the second source material involved nick fury discovering that the lmd life model decoy androids that his agency used as decoys had developed well agency of their own becoming self-aware and sentient enough to resent their exploitation Natural infiltrators, they doppelganged up on their human creators and replaced most of them with duplicates, save for the formidable Nick Fury and a few other holdouts. The television show narrowed the focus to just a few LMDs personified by an advanced model droid named Ada. In the course of the season, she ends up spiriting several of the show's main characters into a virtual reality simulation called The Framework, where the underlying trope is that hydra rules supreme ada played by mallory jensen in the simulation is the infamous madam hydra and some of the framed heroes get to play villains which is always a fun challenge for the actors it's deftly done and furthermore plays pointedly to today's headlines with president donnie dystopia seemingly being his own budding hydra whisperer in her own increasingly fictional real world enjoyably chilling at least on television not so much in real life it's also an interesting exploration of the ethics surrounding the creation of ais and they've successfully introduced and developed the ghost rider and his hot wheels uh, bad news for the life model decoys lmds burn real well titanium chassis chassis and all that uh, yet another in the long fleet of movie and TV Dodge, char- Dodge charges the Ghost Rider has. Unlike Robbie the Ghost Rider, I'm... Not a flame and head. What is it about charges? They're ubiquitous in movies and on telly. Well, I'll leave you with that for the moment. 1982, when Magician came out, Romanine Feist's first book in his Midkemia saga, The Rift War, also was the year for a great fantasy movie. Well, I thought it was great at least. And it's Conan the Barbarian. So this is Basil Polidorus' Theology Civilization theme. And this is one of my favorite all-time Tracks from any soundtrack. Okay, thanks a lot for listening to Zero G today, and thanks to Beck for helping out as well. That's it. Coming up next is Joe Brenatic with Astral Glamour. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to
1: hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.